But the problem is they're still on the edge of the cliff and all it takes is another little puff of wind and they fall off again. Welcome to the Wellbeing Champions podcast brought to you by Loonbase. My name is Aaron. And my name is Tom. This is the Wellbeing Champions podcast where we bring you pearls of wisdom from the best and brightest in the wellbeing world. We aim to share knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to truly work and live well. We need to make it clear from the start of this episode that discussions are for information purposes only. They do not constitute medical advice. On today's episode, we welcome Gavin Rutledge. Gavin is an osteopath with a specialist interest in lower back pain. He has a master's degree in pain management from the University of Edinburgh. With this expertise, he founded ActiveX Backs, where he is the chief back officer. Their mission is to give sufferers of lower back pain and sciatica hope, rapid relief, and the confidence to live an active life. Uh, Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tom. Pleasure to be here. We'd like to start the show uh, with a little warm-up round, the fast five questions. And so I'll begin. Uh, what's your favourite day of the week? Uh, Monday. <laughs> yeah. Why do you say that? Because uh, I've always got so much to do and I'm just keen to get cracking. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, to be fair, yeah, everybody likes a Saturday morning, don't they? Um, so it'll be a tough choice. But yeah, I, I like different days for different reasons. And uh, standing or sitting desk? Uh, well, you've got me standing at the moment. Um, so I probably spend about 60% of my day standing and 40% sitting. Oh. Maybe we'll get into the, the reasons why uh, shortly. Yeah, I think have got a lot to learn here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are you a night owl or an early riser? Oh, very early riser. Yeah, what, yeah. Time, what, what time are you up this morning? Uh, well, this morning, not till five. Um, but not, normally I'm about 20 to five. Says, he says about, I'm always <laughs> up at 20 to five or soon thereafter. Well, good for you. And if you were going to live in isolation on a desert planet, what three things would you take with you? Oh, God. Uh, off the top of my head, probably a, a kettlebell um, and uh, an iPhone and a charger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if our desert island is allowed electricity. <laughs> um, yeah, we'd all struggle without that, wouldn't we? <laughs> Too right, um, yeah. And, and then the final question, if you had a, a gigantic billboard positioned somewhere w where you could reach, you know, metaphorically millions of people, what message would it say? That's easy for me. That would have to be my number one rule, which is use it or lose it, but don't abuse it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, good. So, yes, tell me, you know, how did you get into to becoming an osteopath and what was your motivation in the first place? Uh, quite a long time ago, but uh, a short story. When I was 15, I had a neck injury from rugby. It wasn't a serious injury, but it persisted. And about six weeks later, my mum called to me and I did that kind of stiff body turn thing without moving my neck. And she said, oh, you still got that sore neck? I said, yeah. So she dragged me along to see an osteopath in Glasgow who um, magically fixed it in one session, and I was quite impressed by that. So for me, Tom, you know, I know you've, you've very much gone down the medical route, so I had a choice of medicine or osteopathy, chose osteopathy, and that was uh, quite a long time ago. And I've been doing it ever since. And over those many years of being a practicing osteopath, I've always been intrigued by why people don't get better and generally, in my experience, because they, uh, you know, we can help them inside the consulting room, but we can do very little to help them outside. So I've been very focused on how to support them outside the consultation. Great. Was that the motivation that kind of drove you to do the your master's in pain management? 
I suppose what drove me to do that was, yeah, just always seeking greater understanding of why some people get better, why some don't, and an awareness that there were gaps in my knowledge. Neurology was always my favorite subject uh, as an undergraduate. And so, yeah, I'd always been fascinated in how pain really works, but had a sense that I just wasn't entirely on top of that. So the master's was, um, yeah, hugely valuable and, and probably the one thing that has changed my practice more than anything else in the last 29 years. From your profile and from Active Expats, you talk about, you know, curing the world of, of lower back pain and sciatica. Could you explain the difference for people? Sure. Um, so lower back pain is exactly as, as it's described, pain in your lower back, which is defined as the area between the bottom of your lower rib, uh, your lowest rib, your 12th rib, and uh, the gluteal fold, which, as you'll know, Tom, is just at the bottom of your buttocks. <laughs> so that whole area, interestingly, is described as lower back pain. Um, and we actually, when we provide people with a, what we call a functional assessment, we just describe it as lumbago. Because it kind of sounds a bit better, you know, a bit more informative than lower back pain, but essentially means the same thing. Sciatica, as I am at great pains to point out to people time and time again, is simply a description. It's not a diagnosis. Sciatica simply means pain and or pins and needles in the distribution of your sciatic nerve. It doesn't tell you why you've got it. Uh, often people come to me with a diagnosis, so-called, of sciatica. And I say, look, it's a bit like if you went to your doctor and said, I've, I've been getting these real pains in my head, uh, your doctor might, you know, kind of rub his chin sagely and said, ah, I know exactly what's wrong with you. You have a headache. Um, you know, that, that's all it is. Tells you what you have. You've got a pain in your leg uh, and where it is. So that's all sciatica means. And are there some simple tips that maybe everybody should be doing in the prevention side of things? Oh, um, prevention. Okay, so what, what causes lower back pain and sciatica? if we assume that there's some kind of mechanical issue. There's really only three ways to damage your lower back and the associated tissues. And, and one is what we call sustained load. So it's staying in one position for a prolonged period of time. Second one's cumulative load. So you do the same thing repeatedly. And the third one is peak load. So that's a kind of one-off excessive load. So if you want to avoid damaging a tissue, then those are the things you need to think about. Uh, in our in our clinic, when we audited the uh, 1,250 lower back pain and sciatica patients, we found that 72% of them were what we call intolerant of flexion. So they didn't like bending forwards or sitting. So for me, um, sitting is a big factor for a lot of people, and that's sustained and cumulative load. You know, people tend to do it for prolonged periods, and they do it day after day, so it's cumulative. So, I mean, I am in that 40% of the working population with a degree of chronic low back pain. Um, and like many people, I can go weeks where it's barely noticeable and other weeks where it's, you know, it's really flaring. You can never really ascertain why or, or what have I done differently. There seems to be this new modern trend of getting a standing desk and, and working with a standing desk. Are you aware of evidence that they help, you know, and what would be your recommendations to people about working from home or working from the office space or when they're allowed? That, you know, are you aware of any benefits of a standing desk? Yeah, I think the main benefit of a standing desk is it affords you variety. And if we come back to the, the causes of damage, if you like, to lower backs, it's the sustained and cumulative load. So the antidote to that is variety. 
So you don't want to be doing the same thing for prolonged periods repeatedly. So I mentioned earlier that I sit rough or sit-stand ratio of approximately 40-60. But that depends on what I'm doing in a day because I still do a fair bit of clinical work uh, as an osteopath. So I'm up moving around on my feet all of that time. But if I have a day as I am today working from home at a desk, then approximately I'll spend 60% of that day standing and 40% sitting. But unlike the lady I saw the other day, I chunk it up. So I'll typically only spend 30 to 40 minutes in either of those positions before changing. And I think that's the main advantage that a standing desk affords you is the variety. You know, it's really important not to spend a long time in any one position, just keep changing. So when people say to me, you know, should it be standing or sitting? The answer is always both. Would you still recommend standing even if you don't have, say, the the monitor at the perfect height and the keyboard at the perfect height and all the fancy mm. rig, like, is kind of just plunking it on the kitchen table and standing yeah, up? Yeah, kitchen, yeah, or, or kitchen bar unit, ideally, because it tends to be higher. So, yeah, I would definitely advocate for that. But again, you know, we have to determine, you know, not just are you varying the load, but where are you already experiencing problems? So if you're having problems with your lower back and it and it's stiff and sore when you get up from sitting, then you really need to minimize the sitting and therefore stand in the kitchen unit, albeit your laptop is maybe at a slightly wrong height. So you're having to tilt your head forwards isn't ideal, but it's probably better for your lower back. But it means you're going to be putting slightly more load on your kind of neck and upper back area. But you know that's a trade-off because in the meantime, your lower back is able to settle down. So yes, you know, having this kind of optimal setup where your keyboard and your the top of your screen are at the right height is ideal, but most people who live in the real world don't have that luxury. Although I have to say, you know, it, it actually doesn't cost that much to set up. And you, you could use, you know, so long as you can afford a separate keyboard and mouse, you could just put the laptop up on a pile of books to get it to the right height and the keyboard, you know, at roughly kind of elbow height is where it should be whether you're sitting or standing you want your keyboard around about elbow height that's great and everybody has turned to online purchases to aid them through the pandemic and i've, and I've seen this big popularity in things like foam rollers um mm -hmm. bed of nails mm -hmm. have you got any insight into them and i mean <laughs> from my standpoint is always have an assessment first if you've got an issue seek professional advice um before mm -hmm. before indulging in some of these purchases even inversion tables i had a patient the other day who'd bought themselves an inversion table off their own back from Amazon or such likes. So. Yeah. Yeah. My dad used to have an inversion table in the last sort of 10 years of his life. And uh, I did try it once because I had a, a flare up of lower back pain myself. Um, they lived in Spain at the time. And uh, I actually found it quite helpful, but I wouldn't adv advocate it for everyone. Um, so, in terms of using tools, whether it be foam rollers, bed of nails, and I have to admit, I don't really know anything about bed of nails other than, you know, kind of freak show approach. Um, so I'm not sure how that's being used in any therapeutic context. Um, so any of these tools, I would always stick to this maxim of use it or lose it, but don't abuse it. So if, if you're doing something and it feels good for it and, and you don't feel any worse after having done it, then it's probably a good thing. But if you're doing it and you're thinking, oh, geez, oh, geez, that's a bit sore. Oh, that's a bit sore. Then yeah, I would say don't do it. 
um, you're probably just perpetuating your problem. Um, so it always comes down to the individual. Some people may be benefiting from tra the traction effect of an inversion table. For other people, if you have a what we call an instability, so a joint that's a little bit lax in your lower back, tractioning could be the worst thing you, you could possibly do for it. But, you know, pain will tell you. Sage advice. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so go, going back to my personal back pain, um, are there any kind of core strengthening exercises that I could be doing at home or at my standing desk to try and help preserve some core strength that aid this persistent lower ache that many people suffer? Yeah, on the subject of core strength, Tom, I mean, it's a phrase that's almost worked its way into everyday life for people. Certainly in the exercise world, we're always hearing about your core. Probably a lot of that has come out of the Pilates coaching field. The interesting thing when it comes to lower back pain is that there isn't much evidence that one type of exercise is better than the other types of exercise, but there's massive amounts of evidence that exercise is good for your lower back. My approach to core is I prefer to call it something else because core almost seems to be owned by the Pilates coaches and I don't think it should be. I think there are so many approaches to exercise that are beneficial. I mentioned a kettlebell earlier. That's one thing I would take to Desert Island. The thing about kettlebells is that you have to be taught how to be stable and strong before you even touch the kettlebell. But once you've got that stability, then a kettlebell is a great way of getting a good exercise routine going. Um, in terms of very specific exercises and what I would advocate. So we very commonly, both in the clinic and on our digital platform, are advocates for Stuart McGill's approach. Stuart McGill's a professor of biomechanics, recently retired, but he's written a number of books and his focus of his most of his research in his working career, as I can tell, is the biomechanics of the, the lumbar spine. There's a set of three exercises eponymously uh, titled the McGill Three. So if you're listening into this and you want some guidance on you know, what, what can I look up rather than just look up best exercise for lower back, which will bring you everything from stretching this way to some horrific weightlifting exercise that's you know, probably uh, good if you're already a power lifter, but a disaster if you're not. But yeah, McGill 3 would be a good place to start. And essentially, I could call them front, back, and sides. Uh, so the McGill 3 are made up of what he calls, I think he calls it the curl up, which is badly named because you don't actually curl up. You're lying on your back. It's an ab exercise. But the way in which it's prescribed by him is a way which minimizes the compressive load on your lower back. So it's the kind of safest way of doing an abdominal exercise. Then he's got the side plank. Um, and the what's the other one for your predominantly back muscles is Superman's or Bird Dog, depending how you want to call it. And interestingly, I mean, I've been prescribing this for years. Bird Dog, everybody thinks it's so easy. It's the easy one, but it's the one that's so often badly done. You know, as in any exercise, it's all about the technique and getting it right. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time if you just think, oh, I can do the bird dog. But, you know, if it feels easy, you're not doing it well. Uh, that's great. And yeah, in the show notes, put a link to the McGill 3 so people can have a click around and, mm. and yeah, hopefully see some pictures and get some insight into good form, good technique. How did you find the transition to making, like, say, the online courses? And I know you have a book. How did you find kind of transitioning your work into those different mediums? I love the variety. 
Um, so I, I still enjoy, I'm lucky I still enjoy clinical work, but I don't think I would if I did it six days a week as I used to 29 years ago. So my clinical work is only probably, what is it now, about 18 hours a week. So I enjoy creating stuff and it enables me to reach a lot more than one person at a time. So having written a couple of books on lower back pain, the first one way back in 97 and the follow-up in 2017, I suppose the discipline of doing that made creating online courses and all of that relatively straightforward because I'd already kind of given a lot of thought to what do people need to know and how to present that information. And putting it in a digital format is just a different form of media, but the content is largely the same. Yeah. How have you found digital access to your services amidst the pandemic? Obviously, you know, this whole world has completely changed. And how's that Mm. been? Yeah, obviously, there's a huge appetite for accessing information online. And as I said earlier, when we're talking about exercises, uh, you know, it's a bit of a wild west out there if you just Google or look up YouTube. So creating that online content, um, I think there's a great appetite for information that's coming from a good source that, you know, knows, knows their onions in essence. You know, I mean, I don't know about you, what health-related or medical-related sites you use. You may use, as it were, industry ones. But, you know, I think if you're looking at the Mayo Clinic and, and similar, you probably won't go far wrong. The NHS has huge amounts of content, but they have to take a very generic approach. Uh, our approach um, on our digital platform for lower back pain and sciatica is specific to that and so we we do everything from triaging you know whether you need to have a medical consultation right through to grouping people's types of lower back pain so that we know they're giving them the right information and the right exercise for their lower back pain rather than just to kind of try this which you know is the benefit of being a specialist in that domain yeah, and I can vouch the quality of your content because I've had a good play around and a click around and I love the individualistic approach rather than this very, you know, this very generic um, NHS resources, which understandably come from a place where they can't offer this tailored assessment on their websites. But yeah, yeah I was really, really impressed with what you put together. Well, that's kind of you, Tom. I mean, the, the, what we're still working on is if you look up the England uh, NHS app store they're, they're, and search for lower back, there is only one app on there. And uh, and not not to denigrate the authors, but you know they, they clearly their remit was just to provide general information. And I think we can do, and we are building something that's I believe so much better. That is, as I say, you know we're using algorithms to determine which type of exercises will suit which type of people. Built in some machine learning so that the system actually gets smarter the more data we put through it. And yeah, ultimately, you know, hopefully we will build something that has enormous value for what is in essence, you know, one of the most costly um, uh, maladies known to man is lower back pain. It causes a huge amount. You'll know this as a GP, you know, the number of people who come through the door saying, oh, I've got a lower back problem is enormous. I mean, it was until, I think until about 10 years ago, it was the single most common cause for a presentation to a GP. It's now unfortunately been surpassed by low mood and depression, but it's still Uh right up there in terms of, you know, in terms of huge volume and and huge morbidity and disability it causes. Yeah. 
So Gavin, in terms of my personal low back pain, and I just seem to get these random bouts, can you give me any insight into why, you know, to why one week I seem to be coping just fine and then the next week I'm, you know, things are really flaring? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a classic description, Tom. I mean, you'll see this as a GP. I certainly see it as an osteopath. People come in and say, all I was doing was... Um, and, and I know as soon as I hear that phrase, I know the next thing they're going to say is not the cause, it's just the trigger. So the way I would explain that to people is that if you can imagine that you're traveling along through life, um, everything's fine, you're bumbling along, everything's fine, then all of a sudden, boof, you're in pain. What's happened is you've fallen off the cliff of pain. And you find yourself down deep in the sea of pain with lower back pain. Now, what happens is that people focus on trying just to get out of pain. So they scramble back up that cliff face, whether they're using painkillers or manipulation or some exercises they've learned, and they get better and they feel okay again. But the problem is they're still on the edge of the cliff and all it takes is another little puff of wind and they fall off again. And so many people spend years yo-yoing up and down that cliff of pain. And unfortunately for some people, they end up stuck. You know, it happens so often, they actually end up just stuck in the sea of pain all the time. And as you all know, I think it's about 23% of the population are classified as either chronic or recurrent, so persistent or recurrent lower back pain sufferer. So I would say to people, okay, we know what the trigger is. It's, you know, leaning forwards to get shopping out of the boot. It's bending over to dry your feet on the edge of the bath, whatever that may be that's just the thing that pushed you off the edge what we need to identify what were the things that pushed you closer to the edge in the first place Uh, and for that we only need to go to the research and the research will tell you what the risk factors are for lower back pain and we've got primary risk factors and secondary ones Um, but in essence we come back to loading so peak sustained and cumulative loading will push you closer to that edge Um, Then we've got a whole range of other sort of non-mechanical risk factors, which um, sometimes surprise people, but I'll launch into them. So we've got smoking, interestingly, as a risk factor for persistent lower back pain. Um, We've got what are known as psychosocial factors. So particularly not being happy at work seems to be a risk factor. Being significantly overweight is what's known as a secondary risk factor. So it doesn't seem to increase the risk of it happening in the first place. But if you get a dodgy lower back, then it's more likely to recur if you are significantly overweight. Then, of course, we've got lack of physical activity, and this is just a broad category. People who are less active tend to get more lower back pain. And the number one risk factor for lower back pain, and of course this is a secondary risk factor, is having had it before. So if you've had lower back pain before, you're at something like 60% risk of it happening again within 12 months. And those are the things that people need to address is, you know, all of those risk factors if you want to essentially get as far back from the edge as possible. So in your case, Tom, I would be saying, you know, which of those risk factors do you identify with? And those are the things that we need to work on. So sig- significantly overweight, check. <laughs> no, well, Locked, lockdown, well, lockdown diet's not serving me well, Gavin. Yeah, COVID belly. Uh-huh. Um, playing rugby was an initial injury. And from then, you know, from then every maybe six months or so, I will, I'll go for a flare. But actually, it's, it's very well managed. Um, I have, I've tried inversion table myself, actually. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I think I, I did get some respite um, in a, you know in an acute flare. Yeah. I mean, the, okay, it's a common story, Tom, and I'm exactly like you. I had a, a an injury when I was 18, originally training for rugby, but aggravated frequently by playing. Um, mm. You know, any sort of well something I had to do a lot of kind of leaning over and trying to haul the ball up off the ground that kind of hauling other players off off the ball that would set me off um so that's what I would call flexion intolerant yeah and so for me I didn't know it then but what I would then say to anybody who has that kind of flexion intolerance is you need to minimize flexion for an extended period of time in order to give the tissue time to settle and then we need to reprogram how you perform those movements. So classic one is using a sort of hip hinging approach to bending forwards. And then stabilize those movements and build strength. So Gavin, what's on your horizon and any exciting projects coming up in the future? I've tried to pare them down. My my weakness is having too many things that I'm excited about, hence the uh, getting up on Monday mornings excited. So the stuff I'm trying to stay focused on is developing this uh, digital platform for lower back pain and sciatica sufferers, uh, where we do everything from triaging right through to delivering um, tailored content that helps people to relieve and prevent their pain. And another project I'm working on with an engineer um, who's based in the south of England uh, is that we're looking at designing, building a chair uh, that helps to, A, for you to sit as comfortably as possible, but also to actually strengthen your lower back. So it will double up as a chair and essentially an exercise tool. So yeah, that takes up a lot of my time and uh, yeah, looking looking forward to seeing those plans come to fruition. Oh, great, it's very exciting. Yeah, let me let me know when the chairs uh, chairs are available because I'm going to be uh, top of the uh, top of the order yeah, list. I think definitely. I could do with a new work chair. Yeah, cool, great. And finally, where can people reach you? Where can they connect with you? Yep. So we're ActiveXBacks, and you'll find us on Twitter and Facebook at ActiveXBacks. Our digital platform is at backpainandsciatica.com. It was historically at .co.uk, but we're migrating to .com. So depending when you're publishing this, um, but, you know, look, well, the .co.uk will be redirected to .com. So, yeah. Great. Well, I will link to all of that in the show notes and. Yeah, for people looking to connect with Gavin and see all of the work that Gavin spoke about, I'll link to all of that at loombase.com. No, thank you so much for your time, Gavin. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to both of you for having me. No, I really appreciate it, Gavin. This podcast is brought to you by Loonbase. Loonbase is an all-in-one wellbeing platform for your workplace. Listeners of this podcast can get an exclusive deal. Just simply go to loonbase.com forward slash champions. That's loonbase.com forward slash champions to find out more.